Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1955 film Kiss Me Deadly. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Um, Barrett, you talked about this. I mean, this we're, we're returning to film noir here. Um, and you talked about this as a movie you particularly uh, particularly like. Uh, what uh, What is your history with this film? Huh, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember the first time I saw this film. I think, again, as I alluded before, I went through a period about 15 years ago where I just kind of ripped through as many films noir as I could, and uh, I hit Kiss Me Deadly at one point. Can't tell you exactly when. Where where does this fit in the sort of canon of noir? It it ranks very high. Um, Some people, well, let me begin with kind of the highest praise, which is uh, Paul Schrader has a very important article, uh, Notes on Film Noir, came out in 1970, and he calls um, uh, Kiss Me Deadly a masterpiece. And it it comes in terms of the, the sort of the cycle of film noir, it's very much towards the end of the cycle. People like uh, Schrader say that film noir, classic film noir, not neo-noir, but classic film noir, kind of ends with Orson Welles's uh, Touch of Evil in 1958. So this is seen as quite late. Um, but it's also seen as a kind of decadent noir, using decadent in the sense of when a genre kind of reaches its fulfillment and becomes what you might, might sort of call overripe. In, in other words, it's got all the elements you see in a lot of noir, but somehow... They've they've gone they've gone to seed, you know. Like like Mike Hammer is not admirable, right? I mean, you 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 admire people like Sam Spade and uh, even characters who are morally ambiguous, like uh, as in Out of the Past. They still have admirable qualities. There's nothing admirable about about Mike Hammer. Um, uh, Schrader calls him a midget among dwarfs. Uh, so, so and then you know you've got. Noir always has these uh, sometimes indecipherable plots. And this film kind of takes that idea of a plot you can't figure out to to the nth degree, because you don't know by the end of the film how any of these people are really connected to anything that's been going on. So so it's a film that it never has any answers to any of the questions it's posing. Uh, It's also a film which, again, noir... Noir has always been connected to certain social issues. We've talked about noir as being often post-war. Characters in noir often suffer from amnesia or other effects of the war. This is, in a sense, not post-Cold War, but it's kind of middle of the Cold War. It addresses things like nuclear destruction. It's got, I think, elements of references to McCarthyism. So again, there's ways in which noir has had something of a social consciousness, but this kind of takes it to the next level. So for all those reasons, um, I, I, I love the film as a kind of culmination of noir. Um, I have a friend that also loves noir and does not like uh, this film at all for those very reasons. Because he feels like it takes everything he loves about noir and makes it dirty. And that's exactly what this film does. Here's a question I don't think I've ever asked you. Are you a fan of noir fiction? Like like reading noir, Dashiell Hammett? People like Mickey Splain, who wrote who wrote the uh, the Mark my camera books are these uh, are these books that you have read? Is this is this the a type of literature you enjoy? Because you definitely like the movies. Yeah, it's a good question, Sam. I I, I like detective fiction. You know, I I love people like P.D. James or Dorothy Sayers, but I'm actually not a particular fan of pulp fiction. Which is which is the other reason I have to remind people. The other reason we watch this film is not only because of the mysterious box, uh, but because this is Pulp Fiction on on film. And I have to say that the writer of the film, A.I. Bizerides, and the director Robert Aldrich despised the book on which the film is based. Oh, we're uh, going to get into that because yeah, any, any, anyway. So, so to get back to your question, I I really don't read much. You know, one one of the problems I have. I've watched enough noir that if I go back and read it, I just start seeing the film in my head. You know, it's like, uh, because so much of noir dialogue fits well on, on, on the screen. So I have a hard time separating the film from, from the book as a result. Well, I, I took the opportunity this week. I've never read anything like this. And I thought, you know what? Kiss Me Deadly is a pretty short book. So I read the Mickey Spillane Kiss Me Deadly this week, and it was 
fascinating um, <laughs> because because of the fact that, like you said, the the chief creative people making this uh, don't love it, <laughs> don't love the book, don't love the character, um, and they and and uh, Spillane doesn't like this movie. So like oh. like I found all of that really interesting. So I thought, well, I need to dig into this. And what I found is that it's clear to me a lot of people writing about this haven't read the book because there's there's things that big changes that are, that affect the way we think about this as an adaptation that people don't bring up or other things that they think is a change which actually is in the book so uh it was it was very interesting to read as a piece of research for this conversation um i will say there there, there may be versions of this type of fiction that i like i did not love uh I loved this movie. I did not love the book, um, but it's a it's a fascinating thing to read in light of thinking about this book. I will say this movie is what I think of when I think of film noir, the structure of this, the idea of having a central character who gets pulled into a quest for something, whether it's a MacGuffin or a great what's it, as this movie calls it. And it feels like for most of the film, they can't see more than a few inches past their nose story-wise. So it's like, okay, I went, I had this conversation and I learned one more name and then I'm going to find that person and then I'm going to learn. And and it takes a long time for the plot to come together, if it does at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's... The, the, Beyond the conventions that we've talked about, this is the the this noir structure I tend to think of when I think about it. You know, you see these things in a movie like The Maltese Falcon. Um, the Third Man has a little bit of this where he's bouncing around. You, you know, you get this big cast of characters. Uh, later noirs like The Long Goodbye, Robert Altman's Long Goodbye has this same feel. Even The Big Lebowski has this feel <laughs> where you're, you know, and, and I find something always interesting about those stories, but also... They're the kind of things where I get halfway through and I, I'm like, I wish I would have been writing things down as I watch this because they just drop this movie drops so many character names before you meet them. And then it's like, have I heard of this person before? <laughs> uh, the first time I watched it, I was so confused because then there's characters who are dead by the time the movie. So like like the um, Kowalski and Ramondo, you never meet because they're dead. But it's like, wait, have we met them? And I, I, I find that a kind of fun, uh, but also like very frustrated I, I had to watch this twice the first time i was i just found myself frustrated by it in the best uh the best possible kind of way but now what's interesting about all of those is they also deal with the anxiety with anxieties particular to their settings as well so i find the um like you said sort of the cold war uh nuclear anxiety that this plays off of especially as you get to the end uh to be very interesting and that's one of many um departures from the book the the book the uh the thing that 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 the 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 object at the core is far less interesting than what you have in the movie right and of course you know in, ter- in terms of the other thing way of thinking about context is they move it from the east coast to la and it becomes kind of a kind of a quintessential uh, la story as well i also for the benefit of some of the viewer uh, listeners who have been with us for a while i want to connect it with a couple of other noirs that we've watched i've already mentioned um connection to out of the past which is which is kind of a film that has uh it's kind of a deterministic feel to it like you know you're the 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 end is always going to catch up with you there's that feeling in this film it's got the it's very cynical in the way that double indemnity is uh, is cynical it's got a lot of that kind of uh, energy of gun crazy um, and the other reason I love this film is um, it's visually really exciting. Uh, I mean, that that open those opening credits are I mean, there's really nothing like them. Uh, it, they obviously influence the opening credits of Lynch's Lost Highway. Um, but there's other other elements of this film that I mean, Aldrich is not a director exactly in Orson Welles's uh, ca- um, caliber, but. He's got a lot of visual stuff going on here that makes me think about the kind of um, German expressionism you see as a of touch of evil. So when Hammer is in, recovering in the hotel, in the, in the hospital, um, there's a really striking Dutch angle uh, shot of him in the bed that gives you the sense of it's a subjective shot without really being a subjective shot. Or another scene, I had to watch this twice to figure out what was going on when Velda is doing her bar exercises in front of the mirror. And Hammer walks in and, and and then you discover, no, you're watching him in a mirror and the camera swings around. It's very disorienting. 
Um, anyway, and and there's just all kind of you know, point of view shots in the car. It's just it's just a film that's it's exciting to watch as well. As, I mean, it's exciting to watch because of the way it's composed, not just as what's going on on the screen. Well, and 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 I think that's also true for locations that they use are are really like I love when the when the first time he's going to Dikers and the the guy with the knife is chasing him and then he ends up there's that huge staircase that he ends up rolling down and and like and you didn't see that the way that that shot sets up you're you're following him along a street and you don't realize that this big opening is going to come in like this so you get this dramatic shot of this body going down the stairs and that's that's very exciting let's talk about the opening because this is this is one of the better open i mean this movie opens with a bang and i would say everything up to um up to uh mike hammer waking up in the hospital is just an amazing it is amazing because it it just this movie runs and runs. I mean, it opens with a person running and I feel like the movie just keeps running and you don't know what's going on, but it's, but I, 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 I love so much about, um, about the way this starts and the way that it, like you said, even with the title sequence, um, it's, 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 it's unsettling in the best possible kind of way. When I saw the credits start rolling, I, I, it's funny. Cause it's such a simple thing. Like anybody could have done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the credits come from the top kind of in reverse the way you would read signs on a, that were painted on the road. Mm-hmm. How, if you look at them, you know, from a, not a driver's point of view, it seems like things are coming backwards to you. That's how the credits come as you're getting this great shot of, of, um, uh, I guess the camera is like mounted on the car. So you're seeing the two people in the car, but you're also seeing the road coming at them and the credits, um, Another interesting thing. So connecting this to to our film last week, um, when they when when um, Christina gets in the car, I love that. So we get this um, Nat King Cole song, mm-hmm. but it's introduced on the radio as diegetic, which is a very Tarantino thing to be like, oh, this like you hear a little bit of a DJ introducing this Nat King Cole song, and then it plays. And so I, I kept looking for little Tarantino moments here, and I was like, that 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 one's sort of right. Uh, right from the jump, we get that. I should also say, you know, we talked about the opening credits having an influence going forward, but I also think that Aldrich might be drawing a little bit on the opening of Sunset Boulevard as well. It's kind of got that, that you know, that same kind of uh, pic- depiction of the road and, uh, you know, the ambulance and all that. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, so so I, to, to, I guess to go back even before we get to the credits, it opens on this woman running barefoot in just a trench coat up the high, like so so you get in action i mean you 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 start on action unexplained mm-hmm. uh, i thought it was it was cool to see a very young cloris leachman um who, which is interesting because she's a very distinct actress in terms of her look and her voice and i would not have known that was her even when i even after i knew it i kept looking at her thinking i guess that's her so it was, it was very interesting to see her uh, in a much uh, a much younger um version of herself um, so we get that we get basically before the, um, before the hospital scene, we get kind of three car accidents like mm-hmm. stacked, you know, so, which is a pretty exciting thing to have in a movie. And there's three of them that, that happen right from the jump. Um, we get the, that great disturbing scene when, where Christina is killed, mm-hmm. where you see Mike chained to the bed and all you see is her feet clearly not on the ground so she's hanging from something you see the person holding the the pliers and channel locks and you're in like so you get the the indication of some pretty in, intense torture going on without it you know being in a way that uh that is gratuitous in any way like i found that that oh that those shots so disturbing and interesting and and then you know the this the kind of crying screaming you get during the credits and then also at that moment um, I, I just, yeah, it, it opens in, in a way that just gets me excited for wherever this story is going to take me. Yeah. I mean, the, the, and, and there, and there's three things I want to say about that right away, Sam. One is though, of course, as you can imagine that torture scene pushed the sensors. Um, uh, it's really amazing. They got to pass the sensors actually. Uh, second thing I want to say is the, 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 there's another noir trope, the trope of the, detective and the investigator being chained to a bed and doped. Uh, one of my favorite noirs, which we've not watched, an early one with Dick Powell is Murder, My Sweet, 
Uh, and there's a uh, there's a great scene of him where he's tied up and doped, and they're trying to uh, convince. They're, they're, I forget what the bad guys are after, but anyway, that there's that's not that's not an unusual noir trope. Um, and the final thing I want to say is um, the soundtrack of this film, which you've already alluded to. Um, so the the screams of, of Christina, the the noise that the uh, that the great what's it makes. And and then this and then the scene which is like sounds like a woman screaming right, mm-hmm. uh, and then the scene that you talked about earlier where um, the guy comes at him at Mike Hammer with a knife. Um, I love the fact that Mike Hammer's footsteps echo and the guy chasing him don't. Hmm, I didn't so notice he, that. So he's coming behind him. You can't hear him at all. And the other thing I want to say about that scene, and it kind of echoes the opening scene, is that after he's done beating the guy up. If I were Mike Hammer, I would have then grabbed the guy and said, who are you? Who are you working for? But he just throws him down the stairs. And similarly, when he picks up Christina, I mean, there are a whole bunch more questions he could he could be asking her. Now, in that case, maybe he doesn't because he doesn't really want to get involved. But still, he's a detective. So there's ways in which he doesn't seem to be a very good detective from what I can tell. Absolutely. And, and th- this gets to the most interesting thing about this movie that that actually works really, really well. Um, when we when you were talking about other noirs that we've watched, I feel like part of them require you not require you, but but so much of them depend on how you feel about the central character that mm-hmm. you're that you're following. And it's so interesting to watch a movie where, as we said, the creatives not only don't like this novel, they hold the central character in contempt. They don't yeah. like him at all. They don't like his, and, and, and this, it, you don't get it. You don't understand it right away. And this made my first watch. So strange is, is um, it's not till later that you realize uh, that this movie is critiquing him constantly. But when you go back, you realize even in that opening drive, Christina basically cuts Mike to the core. She's never met him. And she says, you can tell a lot about a person by small things. You know, I look at your car, you're somebody who, uh, who only cares about yourself. You, you know, you, you only take, you never give. And it's like, she's never met this person. And it turns out like, oh, maybe she's onto something, you know, that, that, that the, and this movie is, is full of people um, critiquing, uh, critiquing Mike. And, and, and that kind of comes in with a lot of the ways that they, they shift the book. Um, uh, for example, you know, uh, in the in the book, the book or bo- series of books, Mike Hammer is this kind of hard-boiled private investigator. In here, they make him basically a almost con man in terms of being a divorce investigator. That he or Velda will engage the other spouse and try to seduce them so that they have so like they're creating evidence. For some of these divorce things, or 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 at least trying to prove something, Um, in the the movie, he is kind of entirely cut off from the police. You know, like like we get we get his you know license revoked, his gun permit revoked. Now both those things happen in the book, but throughout the book, Pat, the character of Pat, is constantly feeding him information. So it's like, it's like he's supporting Mike, even though it's sort of like, yeah, technically I'm not supposed to do this, but it's like, they're working together. And in this, you get this, this bigger separation between Mike and, you know, and the actual authorities, which then leads to that big hammer scene at the end. Um, no pun intended when, uh, when, when after, after Mike has seen the, the, the object in the in the locker and then he and then he talks with pat at his apartment and pat really dresses him down um it creates a moment like that i mean in my sense most of the best parts of this movie aren't in the book except the opening the opening basically is the opening of the book um so so spillane got that uh did that really well and that that is pretty similar but then a lot of the other things that i loved in this um in this movie are things that are Aldrich and, and the screenwriter Bizarities and not Spillane. So um, they're, they're doing a, they're adding a lot and taking out a lot to, in lots of ways, undercut the figure of Mike Hammer, who we should say is a very popular figure. Uh, um, Spillane is one of the most commercially successful writers in the history of fiction. 
Yeah, and, and Spillane takes great umbrage at the treatment of, of, of the character by the film. It's almost as though, uh, I mean, obviously, if, when you're a writer, you believe in what you write, but it's almost as though Spillane thinks they've, uh, you know, they've sort of desecrated something that's really great. And, of course, we don't look at it that way. It, it, uh, that opening speech by Christina or that kind of assessment of, of Hammer is really interesting. Because, first of all, as you said, she's, she's never met the guy. And she nails it. She nails it. But it's also interesting because neither Aldrich nor Bizarides are particularly known as um, as being either filmmakers or writers that are especially sympathetic to women. So it's interesting that they take this opportunity to critique Hammer and, and they tell us from, and that that tells us as an audience from the beginning, you don't like this guy. And, and I think that's why to get back to how people feel about this film, I think that's one of the reasons why it may be a challenging film for some people who like other noirs, because every, every noir detective, no matter how at times shady their behavior may be and how they may sometimes stretch, le stretch the legal limits of what they do a bit, they all ultimately have some kind of code of honor. And with the, with the possible exception of Mike being a little concerned about Velda, but even there, Pat tells him, you don't really care much about Velda. It doesn't seem like he cares about anything much beyond his own skin. And he, do he doesn't even seem particularly interested in the women that keep throwing themselves at him. If that's also very strange. In fact, there are some people, there's been an argument that he may actually be impotent, ironically enough, because all these women keep hissing him and trying to get, you know, get, trying to get with him. And he's, he, he enjoys it. He takes it, but he doesn't seem to have any kind of attachment to any of them. So. Another thing they do, and this is this is a, a a big noir thing that they intentionally don't do in this. The book is written first person. I mean, you are as you're reading the book, you are in the head of Mike Hammer. This intentionally has zero voiceover, which is very common in noir to have voiceover mm -hmm. or some sort of interior monologue to go along with the with the character and by taking that out it's it 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 does and i think meeker's performance is very good in this too it almost feels like maybe he's somebody who doesn't have much of an interior monologue <laughs> uh because because you keep expecting him to like his voice to come in at, at some point and so instead he feels like somebody who just sort of walks into a room and starts punching people to try to get answers to questions and he kind <laughs> of is that way in this yeah, and, and, and that's one of the ways in which the film is seen as um, kind of reflecting McCarthyism. Um, Aldrich was gray-listed. I think Bizarre, I can't remember if Bizarre was blacklisted or not. But his methodology, I mean, it's, it's McCarthyism in the sense of, you know, McCarthy in his, uh, in his witch hunt for, hunt for communists would spare, spare no method. Um, and so you see, um, you know, Mike doing things like, you know, breaking the rare Crusoe record, or, I mean, one of the really other kind of sadistic scenes in the film, along with the torture of Christina, which is interesting, right? He's been there for the torture of Christina, but that doesn't stop him from torturing the um, the coroner, um, the wonderful, the wonderful Percy Helton, uh, one of the great voices of Hollywood. Now, of course, because the film is so deeply cynical, we know that the coroner himself is also corrupt. So in a way, we don't really care that he's being tortured, but at the same time, he's being tortured. And so it's like, you know, Hammer will, he'll go to any lengths to get what he wants. And that's a very kind of McCarthyistic approach. Well, and it's interesting because, because that scene is, is in the book. They have the, mm -hmm. there, there is the key that Christina swallows, but in the book, the coroner just hands the key over to him. So that, that's also a bizarreties and Aldridge creation to sort of push ham. Now it's, it's very in fitting with the character of Mike Hammer from the book, but but uh, but that scene, which a lot of people point to as particularly brutal to watch, mm -hmm. that's something that they create for the film. I'm glad you brought up the corner, things like this, because one of the things that I think is interesting is as much as the movie holds Mike in contempt and it sets you up to not like him, what you do get in this movie is so many other mm interesting fun little characters that you get to encounter um which is uh, one of the one of the things that i find so enjoyable about this is i may not enjoy mike but i but i enjoy the world he explores and every yeah. time we go meet somebody i never know who it's going to be and what their particular you know character traits are going to be but they're they're they, everybody gets these these really interesting little scenes like i think about when he goes to the boxing gym i love the way that that shot where they're not looking at each other they're both looking at this boxer 
off screen, basically to camera is this other boxer that they're looking at. Um, but uh, so I was curious, do you have, are there characters that jump out at you as either particularly interesting, entertaining, important in this story? Um, well, I, I kind of, I kind of like the two henchmen, you know, the, the, the guy, he calls them the, you know, the two cannons. Um, I, I, I like them in part because um, I love Jack Elam. Uh, this is kind of towards the beginning of Elam's career. He's got kind of that wall eyes, can't just think of, but, but I like, I like those guys cause they, they are sort of like two gorillas. Um, and, and Mike's only a half a step ahead of them. And I, I particularly love the scene when they, when they take him to the beach house and, and they, they have this kind of, you know, almost, um, friendly banter with each other. And then of course he tries to escape and they have, and I, so I, I, I happen to love those guys. And then, um, uh, I guess I, 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 I like the art dealer, even even though he doesn't do much. I just love this guy gulping down these uh, sleeping pills so he doesn't have to talk talk to hammers. I, I, I have to love those guys. Yeah, another character that I that I really enjoy, and his death is is something that really oh, hits hard. Is Nick? Nick yeah. Um, and and you know Nick Nick is a character in the book, but but it's brought to life. Uh, the the all the personality is 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 movie creation um, by uh, I think Nick Dennis is the the actor mm-hmm. who plays him. But um, he's such a great uh, almost sidekick character for for Mike. I mean Mike Mike goes to him for um, for lots of things, but but I, I love that 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 you know he. Mike even sends Nick on this sort of mission to figure out who placed the bombs there. And that actually is, you know, um, part of what ends up killing Nick. And, and I feel like the death of Nick hits, hits uh, Mike harder than almost anything else in this, in this, uh, mm-hmm. in this film. So I love that character. And I, I also have to say, we've, uh, we've, we've mentioned him before, but uh, I, I do, I do like Pat. Um, I mean, Pat, Pat is the one character who represents a kind of moral center to the world, you know, a kind of sense that there is an order. But the, the other reason I like him, and this gets back to what I said about the soundtrack, is you've got people with really interesting voices in this film. And and I, I um, and, and, I, and Pat, I, well, I forget, let's say the actor is, um, let's see, it's uh, Wesley. Yes. Yep. Yeah, um, and he shows up in a lot of a lot of stuff. But I, 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 I particularly like his voice. And then the other the other person who you only know through his voice for most of the film is, is the Dr. Sobrin. Um, so I just, the people to me in this film are both interesting to look at and listen to. And of course, if I'm going to talk about how people sound, I got to mention Gabby Rogers, it's Lily Carver with that, that voice that occupies kind of its own stratosphere. Uh, and somehow that's just part of her characterization as well. What other thing I liked about, about what they did with Lily and, um, and uh christina is that they look similar enough that i kept i kept wondering like is this going to be a plot point because they both have very short blonde hair you see you only see christina in just a trench coat and then there's a there are moments where you only see or where you see lily only in a robe which looks like the trench coat and i'm Mm -hmm. and i don't i mean there, there is this sort of visual mirroring and i kept waiting for like is this you know like what is and then when you find out that lily is not in fact lily you know, I almost wonder, did she model herself after the wrong roommate? Like, did she try to make herself look like mm-hmm. Lily? And in fact, she was really looking at at um, at Christina because they it they're, they they look strikingly similar, and and they you know in that way, and and it's a very particular look. Yeah, and her and her 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 name's Gabrielle is another connection to the Rossettis because um, you know Christina leaves behind the Christina Rossetti poem. Christina Rossetti's brother is Dante Gabriel Rossetti. So I think that's a, a, a kind of a, a little sly reference to connect them. Well, it's in, uh, speaking of, of Rossetti, uh, the poetry, the there's, there's biblical references and mythological references and art references. This made me think of, in, in a weird way, it made me think of Tarantino as well uh, in terms mm-hmm. of like um, kind of mixing high and low. Yeah. Um, and again, those are, those are film creations there. The, none of that, none of that is, is, uh, is really coming out of the book. So, so Aldrich and Bizarities are, are thinking about how, how we, how we can connect all these different parts of this world. I particularly like the, um, 
there's not a lot with the the modern art but when he walks through that gallery because that that also speaks to this particular time period you know with with world war ii and post-world war ii the uh modern art movement moves from moves it's like epicenter from a place like Paris before the war, as as people leave Paris as the Nazis come in, um, America really takes over modern art at that time. So, so I like that that sense that like there are these these guys who would have now have this opportunity to you know collect and gobble up this this modern art at this time as it moves to America. Well, at least one at least one uh, critic that I read uh, calls this a cubist noir. And uh, obviously, Cubism belongs to an earlier period of the 20th century. But so, but there is a sense in which you could think about what Aldrich is, and Bizzardis are doing with the plot is that it's, got, it's a kind of a Cubist approach where they're just taking all these pieces and they're 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 arranging them. But and, and somehow, if they fit together, you get an actual picture. But you can't quite figure out how they fit together. It's a little bit like Picasso's Cubist treatment of the human figure, for example. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that word used multiple in in multiple things, um, and maybe it's a drawing from an original observation by somebody. But but absolutely, that that has that connection. Um, what the other big, and we we talked about this a little bit. The other big change that makes this story so much better in the film is again changing what the object is. So in the book, the object is two million dollars in narcotics, which is not particularly interesting. Um, <laughs> In part because what I find so interesting about whatever whatever the the what's it is, um, is that all these people are after this this case this thing, and I wonder it it doesn't seem like many people know what it is they're after. They just know that it is powerful, valuable, and important. Mm-hmm. But I think about things like Soberin seems to know what he's going to do with this because before he dies. You know, he tells Lily, like, I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you where to take it after she shoots him because he's, you know, basically concerned that this thing is dangerous, but all he gets out is don't open the box. He Mm -hmm. never gets like, what, what is, uh, uh, Charlie Max and Sugar Small House going to do if they get their hands on this? It's not like it's something they can use, like, or or Carl Evelo. Like, what are they going to do with this? You know, I, I find that that's so interesting that there's this draw to this thing, and and it's the same thing that that Mike has. You know, part of the reason Mike doesn't, you know, talk to the cops uh, anymore is because. He he sees this as his opportunity to get a big score. He tells Velda, "We're we're off divorces now. There's something bigger." So it's like he thinks this is his opportunity to maybe make a big score. Everybody has this feeling, and then what the thing is is truly is this thing of power and significance and importance. But it's maybe not something people could even comprehend what it is or what you would do with it. Yeah, that that's why Velda calls it the great what's it, because the, they they actually don't know what they're after. They have no idea. They just they just think that it must be something valuable, although, as you said, probably only Sobern has any idea what it actually is. And what he's gonna do with I don't know, is he gonna sell it to one of America's enemies? That's that's not that's not clear at all. But no, I think I think that's the whole point they're trying to make that people go on quests for things and they don't even know what they're questing for, and they will pay an enormous price. And they don't even know what it is they're getting. Well, and that's that's the other great part of the the Velda line. I think this is when she's talking about the uh, the they who are always chasing after the great what's it? She's she, and this is one of her big critiques of Mike, which which also pays off. Is you know you're always pulling at threads, which become strings, which become mm-hmm. ropes, and those ropes will be the thing that you hang by. Mm-hmm. You know, which is like by the time you get to the end of this movie, you know. Uh, you get this great scene where Soberin is talking with Gabrielle about, um, uh, about the box. And he, you know, it's, it's this great speech where he refers to, you know, Pandora's box and Lot's wife Mm -hmm. and the Medusa's head. And he's like, I'm telling you, you don't want to open this, but you're going to want to open this. And and I know you're going to do this. Um, And so like, she is also just wants to needs to pull at that thread and see what it is in the same way. Mike does this as well, and it and it leads to this big explosive conclusion. So I I I like that that both the um, central character and even the people opposed to the central character all have the same kind of flaw that they just want this thing and they have this kind of curiosity, but that curiosity might also be the thing that undoes that undoes them. 
You know, I have to say, I, I just have to make a footnote about the final explosion, Sam. I think that the film has been restored long enough that most people have seen the actual ending that Aldrich filmed. But for there was a period of time that um, the last minute or so of the film was lost. And so, and I'm saying this because people may read some reviews or some critics who talk about the fact that Hammer and Velda die in the explosion. But there, were, there was a release that had the house blowing up without them getting out of it. So I just want to make it clear. And to be frank, I was, I'm bringing it up because I actually like the ending better where they, where they blow up. I, I, think, I think that's a truly uh, cynical ending. And it really surprises me that all Christian Bizarities actually wanted Mike and Velda to survive. Maybe because Velda doesn't deserve to die. Um, but I, I actually find that kind of a satisfying ending when everybody goes up. Well, okay, that's a question that I had because um, I obviously saw the restored ending. But my question for you is how bleak do you read this ending? Because whatever that great what's it is, are we to believe it just blows up a beach house? Or does it, because it's because <laughs> it's interesting when she opens it up, it mm. starts by engulfing her in flames and then yeah. it just keeps building. Mm. So are we to believe it's done with that house or mm. is this, I mean, or did they unleash the end of the world? And we mm -hmm. just, so, so I, but I, so I actually find it interesting that they have the, them running into the water because there is this sense of like, okay, are we far enough away from this? Or is Mike still being short-sighted and realizing like, this is not a, this is not a car bomb that you can, you know, diffuse or walk away from you. We have just unleashed the end of time which it could be you know so so i don't necessarily because i like the i like the uh the edited ending as well but i think you could i think this is ambiguous in terms of like you know and and, and does does velda deserve to die no but no, mike no. maybe deserves velda to die yeah or for, you know and, and that so that leads to my i think my favorite scene in this movie is um after mike visits the athletic club and when he goes back and Pat is there, and I love Pat's undressing of Mike at this point that mm -hmm. he that he basically, you know, points out that this Lily person you're con you're concerned about, if you were a good detective, you would know that's not Lily. <laughs> so we realize <laughs> Mike has been duped this whole time. And and Meeker is great in this scene because you watch him slowly without saying anything, his face slowly falls apart as he comes to the realization that he thought he was ahead of everyone. Mm -hmm. And actually he's behind them. Yeah. And, and you get the great moment where Pat is, says, I'm going to say a series of words to you. And he's talking <laughs> to him like he's four years old and he says, Manhattan project, Los Alamos <laughs> Trinity. And it's just like, like I love, love that. Um, and then you get the great, the great moment at the end of that, where uh, one of the other cops says, you know, what do we do about him? And he says, uh, let him go to hell. Uh, let the big slob sit there and think about what this has done to his girl and what's likely to happen to her. Um, because what you realize is this person that we were, we we're conditioned be even, even though the movie's telling us all these things about him, he is the, I, I I'm conscious of not saying he is the hero of this story but he's the central character of this story mm -hmm. but we realized like oh he's made so many mistakes here even to the point of the the big thing that uncovers the mystery is something he knew in the first scene mm. he gets that letter and all of the letter says is remember me which she already told him <laughs> You know, if, if he was somebody who read poetry, he might know that there's a poem here called Remember Me. And they could they could have done that so much earlier, like almost this whole, you know, odyssey he goes on is completely unimportant. He could have gone right to the athletic club or right to the morgue, at least if he had bothered to read that book of poetry. Yeah, I know. He, he gets the book and puts it down and it just kind of sits there. You're right. It's 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 one more away, which he is uh, he's not he's not particularly bright <laughs> and 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 we're used to our detectives being they, they, being smart guys who usually are one step ahead of the bad guys um occasionally they get duped as happens to robert mitchum and out of the past right when he he realizes that that fisher is not tailing him but but is is is, ta is, is tailing uh the femme fatale um but yeah um mike mike is is never really any he's no steps ahead of anybody actually so 
Now, uh, one other thing about the ending, just because I've I read this book, so I want to say as much as I can about it because I put the time in. Um, the ending of the book also ends well. It's it's very different again because you don't have this this explosive device, but um, it is it's such a grotesque ending to the book. But it's played off as Mike Hammer is our hero. Do you do you, do you know what the end of this book is? No. So he encounters Lily, who is also this person i don't think they use the name gabrielle but she's somebody pretending to be lily who has double crossed sobering to get this two million dollars in narcotics and you know she does the, she says the thing about kiss me mike kiss me and he, as he approaches her he smells that she, all this alcohol on her mm-hmm. and he literally lights her on fire with his lighter and she burns alive in front of him oh wow i mean it is it is a oh it is a so so they pick up this burning thing, but it is a very different ending. Mm-hmm. And again, the book plays that off as like Mike always gets them, you know, like it it's, oh, yeah. it's not yeah it's it's a it's a grotesque ending. So I can see why um, Aldrich and Bizarities mm. would be like this guy. This guy is if you didn't think he was awful until that moment, you would you like at that point, you're like, <laughs> yep, I, it, he, this is a tough guy to love uh, in, in that way. Um, another word we talked about uh, this film being described as cubist. Another word that gets associated with this that I'm curious your thoughts on, and this is a, a genre question is um, the phrase science fiction. Is this, yeah. is this, does this fit into that? I mean, it definitely, the ending has this, it builds to something which has sort of a sci-fi, you know, nuclear anxiety uh, moment, but but would you does does it does it uh, qualify for you? Yeah, it 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 it, it shows up in the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Um, I don't think I would put it in that category. Um, I, I I I I would say that there's this kind of unexpectedly sci-fi flavor to the film. I mean, obviously, and it, and it does in that sense fit very much into the fifties where you get a lot of sci-fi going on. Um, but no, if I, if somebody said to me, I like science fiction, what should I watch? I would not say watch Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah. That'd probably be the way I would think about it. You know? So, yeah. Um, one of the, the things that I, again, I was watching this with an eye towards, uh, towards pulp fiction and tarantino um and we i mean obviously the the whatever the the object the what's it is i mean is reflected in the briefcase you know where you get this thing with this glowing light it's obviously a very different object in there but it has this this same kind of mystery to it the other thing i found interesting is tarantino when he talked about pulp fiction and this movie uh he talked about the the Ralph Meeker performance as Mike Hammer and, and um, said that that's how he imagined Butch, that that's the sort of the, hmm. the way he imagined Butch and the performance he wanted uh, out of him, which is interesting because I also thought about elements of Mike in this movie and thought about Vincent. Um, oh. I, I read one article about Vincent about how this, you could also read Pulp Fiction as a movie about how a guy like Vincent is, overmatched in lots and lots of ways by the things around him he's overmatched by mia he's overmatched by jules he's overmatched by uh, by all of the like he's not really up to the moment and it's mm. like well that actually feels like uh like hammer mm. in this story like this is a story about a guy who um has a high opinion of himself and is kind of overmatched by the moment and it ends up depending on how you read that ending like it ends up in in death and destruction and maybe on a global scale yeah I kind of like that. Um, I think uh, Butch Butch ultimately is a bit smarter than than Hammer. Unfortunately, Vince is a little more likable. But uh, but I, I agree with both of those ways in which he may have drawn on that character. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you have other things you want to talk about with this film? Well, one, one more. I want to say one more thing about the soundtrack because I keep coming back to that, Sam. The the very interesting choice of the diegetic um, radio account of the of the fight. Oh during yes! That, during that during that scene where Hammer is making his escape, and okay, what I did not do is I did not go back to figure out whether not, the, whether it was the fighter that was in the gym that they were talking about. I just I, I, I did, and it's not. It's, I, I I thought maybe it wasn't, but it was just. But it, it's like I mean, what an interesting way 
to comment on an actual fight that's going on, but to have the fight on the radio. I just, I love that moment. I found myself paying as much attention to the fight on the radio as what was happening on, on, on the screen. Well, and it's an interesting way to think about soundtrack, right? How do you score a scene? Well, we think about scoring a scene with music. Well, there, there. For one thing, there is sort of a music to a sportscaster, yeah. right? Um, and 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 thinking about that, and then they he does that also earlier when they're at the pool and you're list they're they're betting on on horse oh, yeah, racing. Yeah, at the horse race. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and you know it gets set up. They're talking. I mean, you you hear um charlie call in a a bet and then you hear the race and you hear like i I think that horse doesn't end up winning and they're upset about that and all of that is you know not necessarily significant to the plot but 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 it creates this sonic landscape for uh for both of those scenes you know and and you know tarantino has um the cab driver listening to the fight so we hear you know so so that's yet another thing that um that I wonder if Tarantino picks up on is like, you know, the, the, the thought of uh, what you can do di- diegetically with something like the radio. Cause he does that a lot in his movies. Well, you know, the more we talk about the various elements of kiss me deadly, the more I think about, the more I think about the comment you made about Pulp Fiction last week about how it's like Tarantino has thrown everything at, at you. And it's almost like Aldrich has done the same thing. He's thrown a lot of stuff at us. And so there's really a lot going on in, in this film. Um, so I, I just want to say a couple more things about the film's influence. Um, the death of Gabrielle when she opens the um, uh, the suitcase is probably influenced uh, the opening of the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, when a uh, character's face melts. And then uh, once again, it seems like we can't talk much that we don't get back to the French New Wave. Um, and Aldrich, uh, in particular, as a filmmaker, had an enormous influence on on the new wave. Um, and both Truffaut and Godard said that touted this film, Kiss Me Deadly, as the American film most responsible for the French new wave. So it seems like an you know essential viewing. In fact, they called him the gross Bob, the big Bob. So he, he, he was, as is typical of so much that went on in the French New Wave, you know, their appreciation for noir and their appreciation for directors, they would have regarded Aldrich as an auteur. Uh, I think most people would as well, even though he worked within the mainstream uh, American studio. He was one of the more um, cynical and um, uh, critical uh, directors of, of American uh, ideology. And I do have to say, you, you asked me about my history with this film. You didn't ask me about my history with Aldrich. Um, when I was, I think, 14, I went, I went into the theater to watch Aldrich's Emperor of the North, which is a, a minor Aldrich film. And it was one of the most unsettling and un- unpleasant experiences of my life. Uh, it's a train. It's a train story. Lee Marvin is the protagonist, and Ernie Borgnine, Ernest Borgnine, is the antagonist. And all I knew about Ernest Borgnine at that point in my life was he was the uh, jolly captain on McHale's Navy, and he plays this sadistic um, railroad bull. And I, I just came out of the theater with like this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like I've just been subjected to. A, a very unpleasant experience. And then on TV, I have I came across when I was a kid, um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Uh, and I've still never seen the whole film, but the, 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 one of the scenes is indelibly in my memory when Joan, um, uh, oh shoot, I'm blanked on her name now. Um, anyway, she's in the film with uh, Betty Davis and she pops down a, pl- uh, a platter and takes the lid off and there's, there's a dead parakeet on it. So, for me to turn around and say, I love this film and I really appreciate Aldrich, it's a really interesting, uh, for me, kind of overcoming this very early, um, really really powerful distaste for his his approach. Hmm. It's interesting thinking about the, the, the film noir or the French New Wave uh, part of this. I think we talked about this off air. Um, it was a, a very late realization I came to that's a very obvious thing um, that you know, part of why the, these noir movies hit with the French New Wave is because there wasn't American movies coming to them during the war. So they came all as a package more in a more compressed period of time. So it's interesting to think they would encounter a movie like this while they were encountering 15 years of noir hmm. kind of at the same time. And it here's a, this is what this is. This is what it made me think about, though, is 
this is very similar. This has a similarity to Tarantino as well. Tarantino doesn't have the, you know, the, the World War II and then all the movies coming at once. But what he has is the video store where yeah. everything exists all at once. Um, so, so I and so I think both of them have a little bit of that. It's like time matters less because it bec- it becomes compressed. Like I heard um, uh, Chuck Klosterman talked about how. Uh, in in his book on the '90s, how when Tarantino casts Travolta, he's not thinking of Travolta in what he did in the early '90s. He's thinking of the totality of Travolta because the video store gives you all of that all the time. He's always every Travolta he's ever been, you know. And, and in the same way, noir kind of comes all at once to uh, to the French New Wave. So that or to the the, the those. Uh, French critics who become the new wave directors. So um, I, I I hadn't thought of that connection, but I think that that's actually a similarity. It's like a cinematic cloud of witnesses. It's like all, right. all, all, all of those films exist all at the same time. Exactly, exactly. So what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Well, you know, with the Oscars coming up um, and Michelle Yeoh having a, finally having a moment, uh, I, I think it's appropriate to revisit Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I uh, Love it. You know, and, and, and coincidentally, uh, after I made that decision, coincidentally, the Criterion channel uh, put their edition on, on, on the channel. So we can watch it in all the glory of a Criterion restoration and whatever extras they have there as well. So, uh, and I, I, I will tell you right now, I haven't, I haven't seen the film since it came out in the theater uh, yep. in what, 2000. So yep. yeah, this, this will be a really fun thing to revisit. Oh, I cannot wait. I'm so excited for this. Uh, I have such fond memories of this movie. So uh, this will be great. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending uh, Kiss Me Deadly and for having this conversation. Uh, I think as we've watched a lot of noir movies, this one this one fits into the conversation in some really uh, some really interesting ways. And I'm I like at this point being able to have conversations between uh between films in that uh in that genre so uh so thank you for recommending this this is that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about crouching tiger hidden dragon in the video store (laughs) 